Welcome to the Giving Experience Podcast. The Giving Experience is a journey into our hearts and souls to grow more connected with our Maker and one another through the practice of generosity in all things. You will hear stories of people that have been impacted on both sides of the Giving Experience. Join us in childlike wonder as we explore and become more present and aware of these miracles that saturate the world around us every day. We are your hosts, Chad Hauer and Brent Taya. And today, we are very happy to have our friends in studio with us today, Joey and Julie Hawkins. Thank you so much for joining us. This is a real treat. Hi, dudes. Hi. Yeah, thanks for having us. Love having you here. And so excited to hear about your story because it is amazing. And I think, Chad, you've known Joey and Julie actually technically longer than I have. Technically. (laughs) (laughs) But if somebody was to look at your roles where you are today... There would be a list of preconceived notions, I bet, that they would put on you as a pilot today, right? And as a pastor in a suburban, homogenous community here in Gig Harbor. So we're excited to hear about your stories today. Yeah, I mean, I think we wouldn't. Like, if you would have gone back a decade and <laughs> said, 10 years from now, you will be in these roles, we'd be like, ah, uh, nah, probably not. Yeah, not a chance. Definitely had a different vision of life than what it is now. For sure. And it really started when I was in the Air Force pretty quickly there out of high school. And this is back in 99. Man, I'm old. (laughs) But actually, Julie and I's first date was supposed to be 9-11. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we were talking and got together. And then I left for Tajikistan for four months. And when I came back, we started to get serious. and. I had to let this beautiful woman I know that, okay, if we're going to take this to the next level, if we're going to get married, you have to know you're going to be really poor for the rest of your life. Because <laughs> my goal was to get out of the Air Force. Financially poor. Fi- yes. Yeah. Yes. Let's clarify. Relationally rich. <laughs> financially poor. Sure. Good point. Yeah. Uh, to get out of the Air Force, get all my pilot license mechanic license, and I'm going to be a missionary pilot flying in the middle of nowhere, in the jungle, fixing my own airplane, raising our own support for the rest of our lives. And are you on board? Yeah. And I was like, sure. Sounds good. <laughs> what? Yeah. What? Yeah. 100%. <laughs> Always up for the adventure. Yeah. And that's when I knew that I had to marry this lady. So. You make me sound so old when you say this lady. I just established we are old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So got out of the Air Force, got married right after, and then drove down to East Texas with all of our possessions and a Subaru Outback. No jobs, no apartment. And but we to, had a plan. We had a plan. What was the plan? Drive down to Texas in a Subaru Outback <laughs> with everything we own. Go to flight school at this uh, school called Letourneau University. Great school. East Texas, it's a challenge if you're from the Pacific Northwest, but uh, amazing school, amazing program, because they had all your educational Bible flight and mechanic stuff all wrapped into one program specifically to try to launch you into a missionary pilot vocation. And meanwhile... Yeah, I mean, I was kind of along for the ride. I had taken a break from school to work in mortgage lending for a little bit, and when we got married, I knew that I wanted to continue my education. So I got a degree in history because I liked history and political science. And at Letourneau, 
which Letourneau is primarily like an engineering and aviation school. So to be in the history program was really unique. I graduated at the top of my class, but there were two people in my class. So (laughs) there wasn't much competition, but yeah, yeah, exactly. The other person didn't show up to class, but it was a really, really great experience. So we graduated together and Joey had gotten a job with a company that helped launch people into mission aviation because as you can imagine, you have a lot of debt when you come out of a aviation program, even with the GI Bill, even with scholarships, even with everything working for us, we still had this, this debt that we had to pay off. So started working for a company. And a lot of people were really generous to us in that time and helped us along wow. the way. And we're so grateful for the people that made sure that we were okay when we were going to the grocery store and we're like, I don't know if this check is going to clear or that we're paying for groceries this month, but we always had enough because mm-hmm. we had people that surrounded us and loved us and supported us. So then we bopped over to Virginia and then his company sent us to El Paso and there's all these fun stories along the way with those. But then one day I was up here visiting family and up in Gig Harbor and Joey was in like Corpus Christi or someplace, I don't know. And he called me, he's like, hey, my company just called and they have this very particular contract in Afghanistan that they want us to go on and they want us to leave next week. So what do you think? And I said, I think I need more than a week to move. And they gave us a month. But again, we went back to El Paso and we packed all of our stuff into a Subaru Outback, same Subaru Outback. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And drove home and moved to Afghanistan a month later. Yeah. So from going from coming out of flight school, this is a little bit technical for aviation nerds, but I had like less than 200 flight hours. And then I was thrown into a twin engine turbine airplane had great experience. And then less than a year after that, moving to Afghanistan to fly and fix a King air and fly all over the country and live in the community and to drive around Kabul, Afghanistan and to have Afghan staff and meet all these other expats from all over the world, working for different NGOs. And so I really felt like I had 100% by pure luck without having to raise my support and go through all the hoops. I was basically doing my dream job. Hmm. I was basically fulfilling my call as a missionary pilot in Afghanistan. And it was a dream come true. Yeah. And then I got hired on by an organization called PacTech and uh, partners in aviation and communication technology and got to work for them. And it was just an incredible experience. Like we, I, I know people always ask us like, how did you survive living in Afghanistan? It's like, oh my goodness, we were thriving. Like it was so, so incredible to live there. It's a beautiful country. Like geographically. It should be the adventure travel capital mm-hmm. of the world. Yeah. It is. You just feel like Indiana Jones when you're <laughs> yeah. hiking around those mountains and in those caves and stuff. It's, a, yeah. it's an amazing, awesome. magical place. Yeah. So it was absolutely beautiful. We The depth of relationship that we had with the people we lived with. We lived with this incredible Swiss family that we're still really close with. Joey's their youngest daughter's godfather. In fact, she came and stayed with Hi, us. Yeah, she came and stayed with <laughs> us last year when we were living at Chad's house for a little bit. So we developed these like really intense, deep relationships because it, it feels like you're in this like thin place where uh, you know here we talk about like don't make sure your Bible doesn't get dusty. But in Kabul, it's like your if your Bible's dusty, that's a good sign because that means it's out on your table because it's dusty there. <laughs> and there's this sense that 
that you're clinging to the Lord because he's all you have, and which means that you go into this depth of relationship with Christ, but also with the people that you're living out that life with. So it was a really special time for us, and we miss it. Yeah, still to this day, it's the sweetest church experience I've ever had in my life. You know, we are so quick to divide ourselves here and I don't like the way we do this at this church. I don't like the way we do that. And there it's it's just a matter of necessity. Mm. I mean, you're just clinging to each other. You could be worshiping right next to, a, I don't know, a Unitarian and you have a Presbyterian and a Baptist and you're all worshiping together. You're a true sense of the church, really. Mm-hmm. And there, unfortunately, you don't really get to participate in the Afghan church, but it's there and you are there supporting it in any way that you can as well. It's good days. And then geopolitically, there's a lot going on in 2007 to 2009. Mm -hmm. Things were getting trickier to live in Afghanistan the way we were. And I know a lot of people have had experiences in Afghanistan because we were there for 20 years. So a lot of military, a lot of contractor, a lot of NGO experiences. Each one's unique. But it got pretty tricky to live there during that time. It used to be that there was military was being targeted and then maybe some government was being targeted. And then the target shifted to just about any target that they could find, Mm -hmm. which was people in our community. Yeah. And so through this, the entire time we lived there, there was a sense that we might have to leave. The organization that I worked for was constantly battling how much staff we had on site and how many people we were bringing in, what the security measures were. I was reading security briefings every day as part of my job to make sure that things were okay in the country and okay for our people. And in the midst of all this, we were trying to start a family and we were having a hard time trying to start a family. We had had several miscarriages and losses along the way. And so we lived in this like tension of, we felt like at any second we were going to have to like pull the parachute and like jump out of the plane. And so maybe that's not a good <laughs> illustration for your job, but like no, we just, we, we, we never knew if there was going to be a day where it's like, yes, pack up your stuff yeah. and go. And so one of the prayers that we had during the season was that, A, we were asking the Lord to give us children and also asking the Lord to give us clarity, a very definitive, this is where you're called to be. We happened to be in the States when we had one of our pregnancy losses. We were able to meet with a really kind and compassionate doctor that was able to tell us Afghanistan is not the place for you to start a family because of some of these concerns that we have. And so if you want to pursue this journey, my recommendation is that you move home to the U.S. Yeah. And that made sense to us at the time. Things were getting intense. We wanted to start a family. The contract I was on was always about to end as well. And so it seemed like a good time to regroup, come to the States, come be close to our people. And then after we get some things figured out medically and family-wise, then we can really officially launch back out there and maybe go with Mission Aviation Fellowship. And then it doesn't matter where we end up in the world necessarily. We love Afghanistan and we could go back there, but we could go to Indonesia or Africa. The destination wasn't the point. The point was just fulfilling my call, right? And of course, like we got home and we're like, did we make the right choice? Was this a huge mistake? Yeah. Everybody who has ever had that experience, reentering society, 
after an intense time like that. It's it was summed up really well, I think, in what was that movie, The Hurt Locker, where he's standing in the cereal aisle, just like looking at all the different choices mm. and then just like you start crying. Yeah. Like like our example was chocolate chips. If you ever left Afghanistan, you were required to buy chocolate chips and bring them back so people could bake, right? And you would get whatever you could get, right? So if you found the most basic chocolate chip, you're like gold. And then we were in the States and we're in the the baking aisle and just looking at the 18 different options and it was literally overwhelming. Yeah, so by God's grace, we found out that we were expecting shortly after we came home and when you've had pregnancy loss, every day is like, okay, we made it a day. Look at this. We made it a day. And again, by God's grace, the first half of the pregnancy was super normal and I was super sick and Joey started flying back and forth to Iraq and Afghanistan during this time and he was working over there. And so it was really interesting to move. I grew up in Gig Harbor and we had moved home to my hometown and I never thought we would do that. And to go from living in a place where we didn't like always have electricity uh, and where things were, it was a hard place to live to move back to a place that is frequently on the like top 10 cutest towns to live in in America. Like it was such a, it was such a shift in our mind and always it was a, this is temporary. This isn't forever. God's going to call us someplace else. Like that was our constant thought. And when I was 20 weeks pregnant, they did like a bonus ultrasound for some reason. And I can't even remember why, but we're so glad they did because they said, oh, something's changed and something's not right. And our oldest daughter was diagnosed with hydrocephalus. And that's the type of diagnosis where it's like everything could be totally fine or things could be worst case scenario. And when I found out the news, Joey was in Iraq. So he called me afterwards and asked, how did the ultrasound go? Mm -hmm. And just like having to try and express that over the phone, it was a tough cry moment. And so then we had Aurelia and she's doing fantastic. She is 13 now. And whenever doctors meet her and they see her file, which is like five inches thick at this point, they look at her and look at her file and all of the diagnoses she has. They always comment like, are we sure we have the right kid here? (laughs) And we just feel like that is such an example of a God who works miracles in our lives. But with a diagnosis like that and all that she has going on, we knew from the very beginning that it was changing the course of our call Mm. and where we could live in the world. Right. So Afghanistan didn't have great health care. Well, neither does anywhere that a missionary pilot would fly. Like you're usually pretty remote. So a medically fragile kid like Aurelia isn't going to thrive in those situations. You know, she's got six specialist doctors and OT and PT and all the different therapies. And uh, just to rewind a little bit, if you don't know what hydrocephalus is, some people call it water on the brain. So you're basically born with severe brain damage. And then they do surgery less than 24 hours after you're born Hmm. to put a shunt in and to kind of drain that fluid off your brain. And these kids are always on a spectrum from non-verbal, non-ambulatory to like Aurelia is absolutely kicking ass. She talks a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So so that's just to reiterate that miracle of how good that kid is doing. And she's had the same shunt. Like I feel like we need to like knock on the table or something. 
She's had the same shunt since she was 24 hours old, wow. which is like unheard of. It's really? so incredible. So incredible. So we see so many examples of how God's been good to us in this situation. And she continues to just prove us mm-hmm. wrong. Like there's things that we don't think she can do. Love and then that. she's like, watch me. So it's been really cool to see. But it did close the door for us. And it did. But I was desperate to keep that door open. We're talking about my calling. Yeah. Right? Like, this is God's calling in my life. How could it be stopping now? Like, were we pursuing something that we shouldn't have? Like, this doesn't really compute to me. But I had a plan. <laughs> Did it involve, involve a Subaru? A Subaru? <laughs> <laughs> Pack everything in the Subaru. Let's go. Uh, it had more to do with the 737. Uh, <laughs> I still thought that maybe I could get a job in Dubai, flying for Fly Dubai. And so Dubai... It's a fascinating place if you haven't been, but it is a crossroads of the world. Everybody's there. It's wild. And actually, it's a crossroads for a lot of missionary workers as well. The plan was, well, if I can fly for Fly Dubai, we can still be involved in that. And they have great health care. So really, it will be great and taken care of. And so I chased that job for quite a while. The whole time, I'm flying back in Afghanistan, but I'm there now in a completely different capacity. So instead of living in the community and flying and meeting all these people, I'm on a military base the whole time. And I'm there for two months and then I'm home for two months Mm. and rotating in and out like that. Not ideal for family life. Sure. I did a lot of solo parenting and it's a large part of why we ended up here because I have family here and community Mm -hmm. here. And so thankful for our community again. That'll be a theme that you'll keep picking up on. We did none of this by ourselves. We had community and family support us 100% the whole way. So as I'm pursuing that job, I'm not kidding. Like after every rotation, I would put my thing in. And they say, oh, just a few more hours. Come home, put my application in, just a few more hours. So then Julie. Yeah, so I I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. And we had this sense that God was going to you know, pull us someplace else. So I wouldn't buy bulk toilet paper at Costco because I kept thinking the second I buy something in bulk, that's when we're going to get a call that we're moving someplace. Like how could I invest the $12 in toilet paper? Because <laughs> I don't want to get rid of it. Like don't buy more than you can pack in your Subaru. So you would walk into our house and we didn't have anything on the walls or anything. By this time, we had two kids. We had Aurelia and then we had Marguerite 18 months later. I think that Marguerite was almost two. And I had a friend come over to my house, an older, wiser friend who had lived internationally most of her life. And she like looked around the house and she's like, wow, it feels really sterile in here. Like You haven't hung a single thing on your walls. And I said, well, you know, I just never know when we're going to move. And so I'm just waiting to move. And she said to me, and it comes up in my mind so often, this line, she said, Julie, I wonder what it would be like if you were to abide in the place that God has you right now, instead of thinking about where God is going to call you next. Mm. And I was like, oh gosh, that like hurts me right here. And I realized that I was living so much in the future that I wasn't seeing the present moment that we were in. And so I started getting more involved in some of the work that Chapel Hill does, the church that I now work at, with missions. And I think we were on mission council together, Brent Tayed, and started getting more involved, started kind of diving deep here. 
And it led to the opportunity to apply for a job at the church that we were attending, the church that I'd grown up in. Again, totally not a part of the plan ever. And we felt like in this season, it was just God calling us like, take the next step, take the next step, take the next step. And step by step, it walked me through this door to this job. And I know that Joey wants to tell you about the second that I got the call or they offered me the job at the church, what happened to him in that exact moment. Yeah, pretty much. We were actually on vacation with the family. She took the job at Chapel Hill. I was like, that's brilliant. You're brilliant. But, you know, in my heart, I'm like, but as soon as I get that call to fly Dubai, we're out of here. And then three days later, I got that call for the interview. You're kidding. Wow. I'm not kidding. But something in my heart had changed. I had a reckoning and I was looking at the timing and why right after she accepts this position at Chapel Hill to do what she was clearly born to do, and that is mission outreach and stuff like that. Why did that happen before I got this offer? It was a very serious internal struggle for me because I'd already felt like I had been losing my call just because of all the circumstances. And now my partner, who I love and adore and who is so much more talented than me, is now chasing her call. What does that mean? And uh, I let the opportunity to go to fly Dubai pass by. And we're so grateful because as our daughter grew up, well, first off, we're so grateful because we know that we're where God has called us to be. First, 100%. So obvious. Yes. Yes. But also one of the little clarifying moments with that is part of Aurelia's response to her environment is when she overheats, she has seizures. And Mm -hmm. so living in a place where it's frequently triple digit degrees would not work for our child. And so she never would have made it. Yeah. Yeah. So we're so grateful. Here in the Pacific Northwest. (laughs) Yeah. It's 70 degrees and she's like, can't make it. Yeah. Our our mean temperature is 59 and a half. Yeah. She was born for this. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But so I also had to remember something that I had said years ago before we were even married. I only ever wanted two things in my entire life. And one of them was to be out there in the wild spreading God's word, doing missionary work in crazy, dangerous places. The only other thing I wanted was to live in community with my family and my friends. And I knew those two things were mutually exclusive, but it's really the only two things I ever wanted. And so when I I lost that one call, I was reminded of my desire to, to live intentionally with my family and my friends. And that reminder was definitely divine and uh, helped a lot. Also therapy. Yeah. Therapy helped a lot. Too. Yeah. No, I'm not kidding. Like we actually did therapy together and I never figured this out until that moment, but we're just telling our story kind of like we are now. And the guy was like, dude, did you uh, take time to mourn the loss of your call? And I was like, what? No, it's fine. Julie's doing her thing. It's great. He's like, hey, you need to like take time to mourn the loss of your call. And I was like, whoa, okay. Hmm. I'm going to go cry now. See you later. (laughs) (laughs) But now this is where it gets really good. The progression of Julie's call, just the way doors open 
and life progresses in strange and beautiful ways, especially because going from the Afghan church that I was talking about before and then trying to enter back into our Western American church was a huge challenge for me and sometimes still is. And so when Julie started to pursue her path, she was working in the church as a mission director and then realized I need to get ordained. People talk about like pursuing a call and I really felt like the call pursued me. Like I didn't realize that I was called to pastoral ministry until it was unfolding before me. And I was like, oh, like this is the next step that I'm supposed to take. And along the journey, whenever I, I would tell people about it, they're like, yeah, of course, we know. And even like people that I knew in middle school, Jeremy Simler, who is a co-host on this podcast usually, like talking to him about it, he was like, yeah, Julie, we always knew that this was going to be what you did. And it seemed like nobody else was surprised by it but me. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> wait, what? And I'm, I still am. Like, I still struggle when people ask me what I do for a job. I'm like, oh, I'm a pastor. And it just, it seems odd because it seems so natural for me to do the job that I do. And I love it. I get to oversee a lot of different things and wear a lot of different hats and always think forward, like that whole like future thinking. I get to do that in my job now and get to live in that space and also welcome people into community and into gospel community through it. But I never thought that would be what I was doing. And so it still feels like a surprise to me that I'm doing it, even though every day I'm like, man, I get to do this. This is so incredible. Now we're what? One uh, major project away from Dr. Reverend? Wow. Reverend, Reverend Doctor. Doctor. Reverend Doctor. Yeah, I'm close. Yeah. This whole idea of calling and how that applies to generous living and how that applies to like our individual sense of call. I think mm -hmm. that for a long time, the way that we looked at our calling was as Joey and Julie, not Joey and Julie together. And it's one of the things that I think has been really beautiful about this season of life is that we've realized that God has uniquely gifted and called each of us to the work that he's called us to. Joey is now vocationally called to fly that 737 for a commercial airline. And I'm vocationally called to be in the ministry of the church. And so we have these individual callings, but within that, God has given us this joint calling of loving others mm -hmm. well. And here you know, he started out by saying, just so you know, if you stick with me, you're going to be poor for the rest of your life. And now we're living in the most beautiful place in the world. And we have a beautiful house that Chad helped us. Chad had to like walk us through. It was like another form of therapy. Chad walking <laughs> us through like, you guys, this house is your house. Absolutely. But like for us as a family to live in a beautiful place, to live in a beautiful house and to live with means, it's been such a unique experience then to be able to say, okay, what is God calling us to do with what he's given us? Mm -hmm. And I think that if we were to talk about an attribute of God that we learn over and over again as a family is his faithfulness to us, that God has been so faithful to us through our grief, faithful to us through our journey, faithful in our marriage, and that in that faithfulness, we get to show people what community looks like. And we got to experience this incredible community in Afghanistan, and now we get to bring a little bit of it here and get to invite people into our home. And mm -hmm. so I think that our shared sense of calling is just to be as open door as we can with our yeah. space. 
like our favorite thing to do is to throw a party and have as many people in our house as we can. And one of our lines that we say is there's always room for one more. Like, let's just bake another pie. Like, Or five. Yeah, or five more. So from, I think we had like 45 people at Christmas last year. Yeah, and that's a good one. it was good. Yeah. 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 And we're hosting an engagement party tomorrow for somebody. We're hosting a tattoo party on Sunday yeah, for somebody. Yeah. If you want a stick and poke tattoo, let yeah. me know. <laughs> yeah. But it's this call that we have together to welcome people into community and family. And I love like seeing people that never would meet meet yeah. at our table and the conversations that happen. And like we just step back and watch relationships develop and people become friends. And it is, just such an incredible thing to to get to be a part of, which is what we experienced in Afghanistan, sitting around that table with our Unitarian pastor and Reformed Baptists and Presbyterians and the Brazilian Charismatics and like all around the table together. We get to see a little piece of that here with people that would never meet otherwise. And, and they're eating tacos at our dinner table on whatever Tuesday night we might be having a party. Yeah, but every night's taco night, not just Tuesdays. <laughs> <laughs> we literally ate tacos together before we started recording. That is true. Yeah, that's right. That yeah. 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 But yeah. also coming, playing off of that, inviting people in and going back to Afghanistan, we received so much incredible hospitality from people that had nothing. Like, especially during the holidays, they have you into their home, you sit on the floor on your jacks, and you share a meal, and you mm-hmm. know that this meal costs them so much and we don't need anything from them. And yet they're just so willing to share what they had with us. Yeah. It was incredible. Yeah. Absolutely incredible. You know, there's assessments for everything. And I I know like a number of spiritual assessments. One of the categories is hospitality. I mean, you guys would be off the charts. Did you guys grow in that in Afghanistan? Is that where it was extra fostered for you? I think that we've grown in it over the years. It's always been a bit of our nature. Like Mm -hmm. you said, with all the assessments and things like that, if you're familiar with the Enneagram, we are both type sevens on the Enneagram. Which is rare. Because it can be very dangerous. (laughs) Actually, we've had to learn how to say like, okay, we need time to start family because I suspect that both of our kids are a little bit seven-ish in their nature. And we need to recognize like, that we're going to hit a wall and crash. If we and what's, what's the title? I know it's like outgoing. Yeah, it's like enthusiast, enthusiast. optimist. Yeah. yeah. Entertaining uh, optimist. Yes, we're <laughs> the entertaining optimist for sure. And so I think that we've always had that bent to sure. us, the hospitality. But I think that Afghanistan taught us what that looks like and how to live authentically mm-hmm. in it. In Afghanistan, I, this might be too much for the podcast, but in Afghanistan, you know everything about everybody's life because you're living so close together. Yeah. And so like when somebody's got Giardia, y'all know yeah. about it, right? Like everybody <laughs> knows about it. And we actually had to condition ourselves like not to talk about our digestive systems as much when we came back <laughs> because it's such a common thing over there. And so like I said, it's a thin place, but it's a thin place relationally too, because you know everything about everybody's life. So you learn how to live as authentically you. Sure. And that has been a lesson to us when we came back home. We want to be authentic with people. Yeah. We want people to be surprised by how we can be open and vulnerable and real when they come into our home. And whether that's that we don't have everything all put together, like I think we'll be moving into our house for the rest of our lives because I just cannot pick out a lamp, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's one of Joey's biggest frustrations with me. But yeah, I think that we've fine-tuned it along the way. I hate to say it, or maybe I love to say it. 
it's almost like there's no better place for you both to be missionaries now, right? Having that context and the ability to speak honestly into a world in which, quite frankly, you know, ironically, in some of the most affluent areas in our country, we're sitting in one, right? A very affluent, yeah. homogenous community and people struggle to be hospitable. I would say it's not because of a lack of desire. It's just a lack of demonstration and no one's showing them how to do it. And that fear of like, hey, this is my castle and it's I my can, safety. I feel that. Yeah, yeah. Especially when we move back. You get culture shock when you move away and then it just redoubles when you move back. Mm -hmm. uh, and especially when you are used to living in relationship and you're clinging to each other like all the time. And then you get to a place where nobody needs anything yeah. or they don't think they need anything relationally. Mm -hmm. And Everybody's living their individual lives, siloed off from everyone else. And once you break down some of those walls and you do start living in community, intentionally getting into each other's stuff, and it's uncomfortable, like a lot of the times. And there's a lot of hard stuff too. That's the mm -hmm. part you don't want to gloss over it. It's not all happy. It's not a yeah, a fun commune where you're all dancing around and picking flowers. Like people are sick. People's kids are going through some crazy stuff, but wouldn't you rather do that together instead mm -hmm. of just by yourself? Yeah. Like doing life in community in the morning and the rejoicing is so much better. And we all have things that we're grieving all the time, right? Like we all have past hurts and mm -hmm. we all have things that we're going through, but we all also have things that we can rejoice in. Yeah. And I think when we come together, it brings us into this sense of we can sit with each other in the grief, but we can also sit with each other in the joy and it kind of like raises the bar for everybody. Mm -hmm. So when we live authentically, I think that people see it and then respond back with authentic living too. And it, you're right, like the desire to like drive into your garage and just shut the garage door and like hole up and not see anybody is it's such a severe problem in the US and that people don't feel like they need relationship. But the second like you get that little taste of it, I mean, it's like so sweet. It's like candy. It's so yeah. fun. And so the more that we can give that to people, the better. I love it. If this was video, I'm not bashing the audio, by the way, <laughs> but I'd love to be like show a camera and show all of Joey's tattoos. And so where I'm going to this is, how have you guys captured some of your story thus far? Because there's a story to all these tattoos that you've collected from around the world, right? And how can people learn more about you both, the work maybe that you're doing, if they want to take a flight and make sure they can get on Joey's plane? Huh. Yeah, good luck with that. Uh, <laughs> Julie's hasn't even been on my plane like one time. Yeah, one time. Yeah, it's not the easiest thing. But uh, please, please come on a flight with me. That'd be the best. Uh, you want to know about my tattoos a little bit? Yeah. Tell okay, us about the tattoos. Right. Well, I have a lot of fun ones. And the amazing mustache that nobody can see right now. <laughs> <laughs> Chad was making fun of my mustache earlier. Well, how can you not? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm, coaching, too sexy. I'm coaching soccer right now, so I feel like I have to have a Ted Lasso stash. <laughs> Great. So anyways, the tattoos, I don't know when I came up with this silly idea. My idea was that I would get a tattoo in every country I visit in that language, but I wanted to say the same thing. And so my first one I got here in Tacoma, House of Tattoo on 6th Ave. Oh, it's no longer there. It's not there anymore. Yeah. It just says, all men are brothers. I know it, there's a lot of flaws with that statement, but it's an old, old way of saying, like, we are all family, right? Mm -hmm. And so 
my goal was to get all men or brothers tattooed <laughs> in every country I visit in that language. And that's the rule. I can't just like go back to Tacoma and get it in mm. French. I got to get it in France. And so I think I'm up to 12, 10, yeah, 12. So. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. And it is the most fun thing to <laughs> you do. You meet so many interesting people. Oh my yeah. gosh. Like each story is so unique. What's weird is my very first one after English was Aziri. Wow. So I was in Azerbaijan, did not speak the language, obviously. And there's not a lot of English speakers there. And by pure dumb luck, we probably found the best tattoo shop in all of Azerbaijan. And the guy was so lovely. Old star tattoo, Baku, Azerbaijan. He wouldn't even charge me. Oh, my goodness. He's like, this is just a, such a beautiful idea. I, I'm not going to charge you. And then the next one, you cross the land border into Georgia. And uh, and the guy like freehanded it. <laughs> like it looks like a prison tattoo. I'm in a salon. <laughs> I'm in a salon because that's where most of the tattoo places are. And he's freehanding in Georgia and Almond Brothers, I wow. think. Yeah, like I was getting a- my nails done <laughs> while Joey was getting a tattoo. Yeah. Like that type of salon. It was pretty it was, great. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But yeah, highlights were definitely uh, Arabic. I got in Dubai. Lots of European countries, great experiences. Japan was probably my favorite land of tattoos. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation today. If so, please be as so kind as to subscribe and leave us a review. We appreciate it. We'd love for you to join the conversation online in the Giving Experience Podcast Facebook group. Do you have a story to share or someone else's story that needs to be shared? Message us on Facebook or email us at story at thegivingexperience.org. And remember, give cheerfully and expect a miracle because one is on its way.